Well, thank you. It is great to be back here at River Glen again today. Now, in 2011, while we were laying the groundwork for the start of Legacy, I spoke here several times, five or six times that year. And then in the couple years that followed, Ben and I uh, swapped churches a couple times. He spoke at Legacy while I spoke here. But it's been a few years, so it's, it's great to be back here. I remember the first time I met Ben. Ben called me in the summer of 2010. And he said, Jared, we've, we've got this vision for starting several new churches in the next 10 years. We're getting ready to, to officially start all the work for the first one. And I was given your name as somebody I should contact about potentially being the lead pastor of that new church. Well, I was at Central Christian in Beloit, Wisconsin at the time as the family ministries pastor, had been there eight years. We had five kids, elementary age and younger. It was pretty much the only home they knew. And so uprooting them, relocating really wasn't on our radar at the time. But Ben said, if I come to Beloit, would you let me take you to lunch? Now, do you think I have ever passed up a free lunch in my life? So I said yes. We went to lunch, and that was the beginning of a journey that ultimately took us to to relocating and starting Legacy Christian Church in Menominee Falls. And in 2011, for about six months, I had an office here at River Glen. So in some ways, this feels kind of like I'm visiting home over Christmas break in some ways. And maybe some of you are here today because you visited River Glen for one of the Christmas services And you're here again to kind of check things out some more to see if maybe this could be home, your church home. Well, welcome, and I encourage you to continue checking things out. I also want to say hello to those who are joining us online and also to the Pewaukee campus where my family is attending. Hi, Mom. Glad to have you with us as well. Well, 2019 is just around the corner. How many of you made resolutions in January of 2018? 18. Okay, most of you did aren't willing to admit it now because you know what happened, right? Those probably didn't make it to this point of the year. In fact, probably by January 31st, those were broken. How many of you have resolved to never make any more resolutions? Okay, according to the research that was done, about 38% of Americans have decided they're not doing resolutions anymore. That still leaves a majority of people who are at least open to it. Some research was done uh, last January, the beginning of 2018, the top 10 most common New Year's resolutions. We're going to take a look at those. Some, some variation of these, they fit into these 10 categories. Number 10, focus more on appearance. Number nine, get a new hobby. Number eight, make new friends. I'm not sure what that says about our old friends, but make new friends is a common New Year's resolution. Get a new job. Learn a new skill, read more books, and know the subtitles on the TV don't count. Self-care. Number three, spend less money. Yeah, that's a common resolution because it's around the beginning of January. We're getting our credit bills for all of our Christmas, credit card bills from all our Christmas shopping, right? First two, no surprise. Number two, exercise more. And number one, eat better. But again, we know what typically happens Uh, 70% of New Year's resolutions are broken by January 15th. Not exactly a good track record, is it? And then what do we say? We say, ah, man, well, maybe next year. And we think we'll, we'll try again next year. Maybe next year I'll spend more time with family or I'll help more people or I'll get healthier or whatever. Maybe 
next year. But what if maybe next year could happen? Any Cubs fans in the house? Maybe next year did happen, right? 2016, maybe next year could happen. What if this next year could be truly different from any other year in your life, not because of some little resolution that you commit to and you finally stick with, but because it's a year of transformation, transformation in our own lives that then spills over into the lives of others. How's that sound? Maybe next year, that, that's maybe something that's a little bit intriguing and exciting. A while back, I learned something from history. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about history, and if you are not into history and you're ready to start thinking about what you're going to eat after service, stick with me a little bit because I found this really interesting. I was a guy bored with history in school, but I found some really, I think, valid implications from something I heard from history a couple of years ago. The year was A.D. 400, and at this time, the Roman Empire had pretty well fallen apart. Some tribes, barbarian tribes, had invaded much of Western Europe. They had uprooted the, the stability that the Roman Empire had brought about. Groups like the Gauls and the Visigoths and the Vandals, they turned Europe into a bit of a patchwork of warring tribes, ushered in a few hundred years of bloodshed and violence and war and superstition and darkness. In fact, historians refer to that era in the history of Western Europe as the Dark Ages. At that time in Western Europe, the church fell into disarray. In fact, what was viewed and kind of accepted as the capital of Christianity up until that point, city of Rome, capital of the Roman Empire, was actually relocated out of Europe to Constantinople, which is now Istanbul in Turkey. And some parts of Western Europe, it appeared that Christianity was going to disappear forever. But then something happened in the seventh century that began to change that. From a place that was considered remote, maybe even backward and irrelevant, from a couple of islands in the far northwest part of Western Europe, came some Celtic monks who began to spread the light of Jesus throughout Western Europe again. They were a, a ragtag band of unsophisticated, unlikely, but very courageous missionaries who began to, one and two at a time, bring light and hope and peace and justice to a place where for centuries there had been no civil authority, no organized system of justice, no plan for any kind of, of formal education. In fact, a few years ago, a book was written that stayed on the bestseller list for a while about how these Irish, these Celtic monks, in the views of some historians, saved Western civilization from the Dark Ages. Here's how they did it. They essentially arranged their world, these Celtic monks, around two places. Ironically, both of them kind of circular in shape. And the first of those was called the cell. Now, not like a prison cell. It was a stone hut that they each built as their living quarters. But it was more than that. It wasn't just a place 
where they slept. It was a place where they practiced, where they exercised spiritual disciplines. Things like reading the word of God, spending time in prayer, practicing confession and repentance. They would arrange these in a circle, these individual cells, with the monastery in the middle. And so they would gather together in the monastery for worship and then return to their individual cells for these spiritual disciplines. And it was much more than just trying to become better Christians, better, more holy followers of Jesus. It was in these cells that they sort of flexed and unflexed their spiritual muscles. It was, these were sort of like their spiritual workouts where they looked at themselves and they said, what is it in my life that's holding me back from what God intends for me? And then they tried to figure out how to get that out of the way so that they could fulfill the mission they believed God had given them. So these cells became places of, of personal transformation because of the spiritual disciplines that they practiced there. And so these rough and tumble, previous to this, uneducated but totally committed wild guys became missionaries because of the time they spent in the cell. These early Christ followers, they were committed to bringing the light of peace and justice and kindness and hope, the light of Jesus, to a world in darkness. So as people dedicated to the cell, they also were dedicated to something else that was in the shape of a circle, and that was a coracle. Now, a coracle was a one- or two-person boat usually made in kind of a wicker construction. It was light enough that one person could carry it on their back. And so after these Celtic monks had spent time in their cells practicing these spiritual disciplines, they would then go sometimes one at a time, but typically in groups of two, they would go either to a river or to the sea. They would put the boat down, they would fall on their knees and they would pray to God wherever the wind and the waves and the currents take us, Lord, we believe that will be the mission field that you've assigned for us. Then they would put the boat in the water, they would climb in, and wherever that boat went ashore, wherever it bumped up against the land, they got out and they transformed that place as their mission, taking the light of Jesus there. And that's how many historians believe Western civilization was rescued from the dark ages. And thousands, potentially even millions of people were saved from a Christless eternity because of these people who were viewed as far off and insignificant, but who surrounded their lives, centered their lives on the cell and the coracle and what those meant. Focused on the cell of personal spiritual discipline and the coracle of, of being taken to a place where they could live out their personal world-transforming mission. Now, that may sound like a new concept, but it really isn't. The combination of these two things, personal spiritual disciplines that are developed in a place like this, spilling over into the place where the winds and the waves and the currents of life have taken us, we read that story repeatedly in the lives of people that we see in the Bible. We could look at several examples, but we're going to spend just a few moments looking at the life of one man, a guy named Daniel. Now, I grew up going to church. I was in Sunday school every Sunday as a kid. And so that meant I heard more than once about the story of Daniel because there's a pretty cool part of his life that is great to talk about in a Sunday school class, especially if you've got a bunch of, of young boys in it. And that's the story of Daniel in the lion's den. That's right. 
You know that part of the story. Daniel was thrown in the den of lions, but God sent an angel to shut the mouths of the lions, and so Daniel was spared. He survived the night in the lion's den. And every boy in the class goes, wow, I could do that. I could survive a night in a lion's den. Well, that's not the part of the story I want to focus on right now. I want to look at the life that he lived that led up to that point. See, Daniel was an Israelite. It's part of the nation of Israel. And the people of Israel, they had been asked by God to play a special role in the world, to, to be the nation through whom God revealed himself to the rest of the world. But they often forgot their role in that, their part in that. They became very proud of it and, and would call themselves God's chosen people, but they forgot how they were supposed to live as part of that bargain. And so God would remind them, sometimes not gently, by causing things to happen that would bring them back to him. And oftentimes it was an enemy nation coming in and conquering them to kind of wake them up and turn them back to God. In Daniel's day, it was the Babylonians. The Babylonians came, they conquered Israel, and instead of just conquering and then leaving, they chose to do something unique. They chose to take some of the, the children of the nobility, some of the children of the significant families living in Jerusalem at that time, take them away with them back to Babylon. And Daniel was one of those taken. And so Daniel was, was put into a regiment to be trained, similar to others there in Babylon. But Daniel made a commitment early on that he was going to remain devoted to God. And that when there were challenges that caused him to, to question whether or not he should give up on that commitment to God, he would remain true, remain true to that commitment. And so when it came to the things that he did, even down to what he ate, he drew a line in the sand and said, I'm not going to compromise that. I'm going to remain true to my God. Well, the king noticed that, and it caused Daniel to get put into some important positions. Now, one of the reasons we know Daniel stayed very committed to this is something that we read about in Daniel chapter six, verse 10. This is what we read about Daniel. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. Here we see his commitment to the cell, to, to personal spiritual disciplines, and those spilled over into the place that the, the waves and, and the currents and the winds of life had taken him to Babylon. The king noticed, and here's what we read in verse 3 of Daniel chapter 6. Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So the king is going to make Daniel number two. Two, second only to the king, in charge of everything. Well, Daniel's colleagues aren't super excited about his promotion. They're a little bit jealous, and they decide to try and find a way to challenge his credibility. The problem is, these spiritual disciplines have caused Daniel to be a man of integrity, and they cannot find any corruption in him. The only thing they can find to even try to challenge him is his faith. Here's what we read in verses 4 and 5 of Daniel 6. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. 
They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Daniel's so committed to these personal spiritual disciplines that spilled over into his life, caused him to be a man of integrity. They couldn't find anything to challenge except his commitment to the law of God. So they, these other administrators and satraps, they go to the king. They convince him without him realizing their ultimate goal, convince him to create a law that anyone who prays to any other god except the king will be thrown into a den of lions. Daniel hears about this law, and now he's got a choice. Do I stay committed to my cell and the, the personal spiritual disciplines that take place there and end up in the lion's den? Or do I save my life and abandon those disciplines? Well, we read verse 10 earlier, but we read it out of context. Verse 10 now, where we read about Daniel's spiritual habits, that is actually in response to this new law. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. And was this something new? No, just as he had done before. So because he'd developed these spiritual disciplines, when he faced challenges in life, where did he go? To those disciplines he'd already developed, just as he had done before. And then the rest of the story is what I learned about in Sunday school, right? It's reported to the king that he's praying to another god, and the king now realizes he's been tricked into this law, but what can he do because the law is on the books? And so Daniel's taken, he's thrown into the lion's den. The angel comes, shuts the mouths of the lion, the lions in the morning, when the den is open, the king is ecstatic to discover that Daniel is alive, and here's how it affects the king, picking up in verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Now, how is that for impact? This commitment that Daniel had to his, his personal spiritual development spilled over into the place that life had taken him, into Babylon, where the king ended up proclaiming that everyone should worship this true God of Daniel. And we see this kind of biblical pattern happen again and again in the lives of people that we read about in the Bible. So what if the same thing could happen in our lives? And what if as we think about next year, we think about 2019 and we wrestle with this idea of, well, maybe next year something could happen. What if it could be a year of transformation kind of like that? Where we commit ourselves to a couple of things that end up, first of all, transforming us, but then out of the overflow of that transforming the world into which we've been taken by the circumstances of life. What if this was the year that, that we got closer to God than ever before and God used our lives in, in positive ways to bring light and love and hope and peace and mercy and compassion into the mission field where we've landed just like those Celtic monks 
hundreds of years ago. 2019 could be the greatest year of personal transformation and transformation in the world around us if we'll commit ourselves to the same things that those Celtic monks did. Now, let's be clear about what this isn't because we've talked about New Year's resolutions and how frequently they fail. So I'm not asking you to say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read my Bible a little more. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but that's not really what this is about. And I'm not asking you to say, okay, I'm gonna try to help more people. Not a bad thing, but that's not what this is about. This is about something bigger than just a little task or habit I've committed myself to. It's about committing ourselves to a process of transformation. A transformation that starts with me and then spills over into the people around me. So here's what I want to encourage you to do in 2019. I want you to pick one place that you're going to go to over and over again in the coming year, the one particular place that will become the equivalent of your Celtic cell, a place that you will go to to practice your spiritual disciplines. Go ahead and pick that place. Pick your cell. The place that will become like your monk's cell. A place where you'll read the Bible, and you'll pray, and you'll wrestle with things that you discover in your life that are standing in the way of what God has called you to do and the person God has called you to be. It might be your bedroom. It might be a corner of the basement. If you're a mom of preschoolers, the bathroom may be your only hope, and even that is questionable. A place you can go, even if it's just your car or your closet or your office, a place that is your special place to practice those spiritual disciplines, to kind of flex and unflex those spiritual muscles, to get them into shape, to be an agent of transformation in your community. So right now, pick that place, commit to it, dedicate that spot to growing closer to God and being changed by him in the coming year. Now, for me, I travel a lot, and so having that place is sometimes kind of difficult. And one of the things I learned about creating that place when I'm on the road is it becomes, for me, not about the specific location, but what I've got in that place. And so I, I don't know why, I kind of get bored with things quickly, and so if there's not something special about it, I'm, I'm not super interested in it. And so I found that if I get a really cool journal, like leather bound and like old pages and stuff, like somehow that's more cool for that to be a part of it. And not just any pen, but I actually have a fountain pen. That makes me smarter when I write with it, I'm told. That this becomes a part of creating that place. And actually, here's where I learned that. A couple of years ago, I'd been in ministry since I was 19. Age 19, a little church in the country asked me to come and be their preacher. I said yes. And so for 21 years, I'd been a pastor in churches. And then I, I hit this spot where it just, it just seemed like it was unavoidable, that it was time for a transition. There wasn't any big moral failure. There wasn't any big controversy or blow up. It was just, it just seemed clear that, that it was time for a transition. That was hard. That was a tough season. I started this church. It was my baby. And not only that, for 21 years, I'd only understood my identity, my relationship with God as a pastor. 
So if I wasn't a pastor, who was I before God? So I shared with a very small circle kind of what I was struggling with. Some wise people in that circle, including Ben Davis and Steve Larson and Steve Widmer and Mark White over at the Ridge, they encouraged me to take a, a sabbatical, a season of seven or eight weeks where I stepped out of my role as a pastor, kind of did some cell stuff, focused on some personal spiritual dis- disciplines. And that's when I got this journal. That's when I began writing in it. And that's when I got to the place, in fact, I, I almost lost it during the song again. Uh, this morning as we were singing the No Longer Slaves, I am a child of God. It was in the cell, practicing those spiritual disciplines that I came to understand that before God, I wasn't Pastor Jared or ordinary Jared. I was a child of him, and that was more than enough. And where I discovered that was here. It was in the cell. It didn't come from Sunday morning experiences. It didn't come from my small group. It came from that private place of wrestling and examining and praying and reading. And that's when I discovered I could be Jared, the child of God, which was a way more honorable title than Pastor Jared. So find your place. Pick, pick the cell and then that place where that's going to happen. And then I also want you to pick a place where you're going to be on mission. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a wicker boat. I want you to go to Lake Michigan. I want you to climb it. No, that's not what I'm saying. Although to the Celtic monks, there was an element of that, right? Like, God, I'm going to surrender the place to you. I'm going to climb into this, and wherever it takes me, I believe that's where you're carrying me to be on mission for you. And that was a little bit of that season for me. In fact, I've I've got the pen marking a page where not too long into that sabbatical, I wrote something in my journal, but I didn't know where it was going to take me. Here's what I wrote. I want to help churches win. Help pastors and ministry leaders win. I could give the rest of my life to that. That could be the mission statement of my remaining years. So that's, that's where I got to in, in the cell, but I didn't know where it was going to take me. And through a series of events, I ended up uh, landing, if you will, with actually a ministry partner of River Glen with Christian Financial Resources the nonprofit organization that was able to help River Glen save uh, thousands of dollars in interest every month by refinancing the loan, and also the church that I've been at in Beloit for eight years helped them save a million dollars over five years in interest. All of a sudden, I saw a chance to help churches win, to help pastors and ministry leaders win, because those are dollars that can be put back into ministry and missions. But at the time I wrote that, I didn't know where it was gonna go. And sometimes that's what it's like. It feels like we step into this boat, God, where where are you going to take me? I surrender that to you. But that wasn't the case for Daniel, was it? We don't read that Daniel in his home in Jerusalem set out saying, God, you take me wherever you want, 
and then he ends up in Babylon. No, he's in Babylon where the waves and the current, the winds of life have already taken him and there becomes his mission field. So what is the place in your life where circumstances, God has already ordained for you to be there as an agent of transformation. As a missionary bringing the light and hope of Jesus. Maybe it's your neighborhood. Maybe it's the gym where you work out. Is it your workplace? Is it your Bridge club or your poker buddies, your kids' play group, pick the place that God has carried you so that you can bring about the change that he wants to bring about there. Pick that place as your coracle, the place where the winds and the waves and the currents of life have taken you to be God's agent of transformation. Now, Remember, this isn't about making a couple petty commitments that maybe we'll get a couple of weeks into the new year and we'll break, and that's okay because there's maybe next year. This is about making 2019 a year of transformation. Transformation that starts here and spills over into the places God has ordained for me to be. And how cool would it be if this time next year, the end of 2019, there could be someone in your place, your, your coworker, your neighbor, your gym workout buddy, someone who at this time next year has been so impacted by your transformation that they come to the same conclusion that King Darius did. Imagine one of your friends or family members or coworkers saying this. He is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. How awesome would it be to see someone in your place acknowledge that because of the transformation God has done in you that's now overflowing into that place. May 2019 be the year that we see that happen. Would you pray with me? Father God, those signs, those wonders that Darius proclaimed. Father, we pray that you would show us in 2019 those signs, those wonders, your power in the places that you've taken us to be your agents of transformation. And Father, we know that for that to happen, it will start in a place of transformation with us in our cell, our place of spiritual discipline. And so, Father, we pray that you'll encourage us in our efforts to find a cell, a place where we flex and unflex our spiritual muscles to be transformed so that we can in turn take that transformation to the place you've called us to be on mission. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.